That's Not My Job. This is Season 1, Episode 7 of the podcast where I, Jared Dubin, and my co-host, Jordan White, talk to interesting people about subjects they're interested in that are not their day jobs. On this episode, which we recorded in December 2017, we talked to soccer writer Mike Goodman, who you may recognize from Grantland, from ESPN FC, from The Ringer, from Twitter, from anywhere else that you read about soccer. We talked to him about the life of a trailing Foreign Service spouse. Mike's wife works for the Foreign Service, which if you listen to the podcast, you will discover exactly what it is if you don't know by now. And um, I, I found this really, really interesting because the idea of defining your life in at least some way through what somebody else does is super interesting. And uh, I had a lot of fun talking to Mike about it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think the most interesting thing for me was uh, talking about how he made himself at home in a foreign country, whether that was, you know, using sports to break down barriers, um, you know, just like the things they brought along with them. Uh, you know, even though they've, they've only been, um, brought in in two places uh just to get that whole conversation of of place making and homemaking was uh was really insightful yeah and you know the contrast between you know the two places uh mike and his wife have lived while she has been in the foreign service Uh, you know they've been in in dc for a while now but they were also abroad in brazil or sorry in mexico and in latvia which you know the contrast between the two places that they were where you know even though where he was in Mexico was so much closer here. You know, life was not necessarily super safe where they were living at the time. And even though they could pretty easily come to America because it wasn't all that far across the border, you know, life in Latvia was maybe a little bit more peaceful, even though it may not have been quite as Americanized. Right. And, um, you know, the, the, the life of a foreign service officer is interesting enough. The life of a foreign service spouse uh, is, I think super fascinating. And that's why I wanted to talk to Mike about it because it's, it's something that, you know, like I said, defining your identity through somebody else is a very interesting thing. And and Mike seems proud to be uh, married to someone who, who does the kind of work that his wife does. And I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah. Yep. Let's get to it. Yeah. This is season one, episode seven of that's not my job talking to Mike Goodman about being a trailing foreign service spouse. Jordan, we have Mike Goodman here with us now, and this is great because I'm going to turn it into, instead of talking about the Foreign Service, we're just going to talk about soccer, and I don't care about anything else. <laughs> that seems entirely reasonable to me, because who wouldn't want to be talking about <laughs> Well, the idea is that, you know, we're talking about things that aren't people's jobs, and soccer's not my job, so let's... <laughs> <laughs> I think it works. Plus, David Silva signed the contract extension today. This is, I mean, Raheem Sterling keeps scoring game winners in the last, like, five minutes of games. Super reliable, always, Raheem Sterling. So it, It's a good time to be a Manchester City fan. It really is. Welcome to the Talk City podcast, where we talk about Manchester City. Yeah. Well, listen, um, the first season I ever followed soccer, they won the Premier League, and my favorite player, Yaya Torre, was basically the best player in England, and I didn't think it could get any better than that, but this is better. 
and it's gonna be better for a long time. This is this is a really good young team with with scary potential. That's the best part is all these kids are like twenty two. Like Sterling's what, twenty two, twenty three, Sane's like twenty, Jesus yeah. is like twenty one. Yeah, Sterling is the is like the I mean I guess Aguero is the old man of the front line, but Sterling is older than everybody else on that uh, in that attack spot, which is unreal. Is he older than KDB also? Uh, you know, I'm not sure, actually. I think KDB's probably a year or two older than he is. But, like, Dan Silva's the only aging guy in the group, yeah. in, in, in the core attacking group. Right. Uh, well, Fernandinho is old, too, but he plays they're, back. Yeah, so. they're, they're going to have to replace him at the base of the midfield before too much longer. But, yeah. you know. Anyway, I promise this will not be all soccer. Let's talk about the foreign service. Um, you have... Um, Mike, as your, I think it's still part of your Twitter bio. The last time I checked, that you are a proud trailing FSO spouse, uh, which means that your wife is in the foreign service. And that's right. And I and I hate to do one of these for people that don't knows, but for people that don't know, that's totally reasonable. Because yeah, most people don't really know what the foreign service is or what the foreign service does. It's it's um. So I think most people know that the United States has embassies in almost every country in the world, right? The, the, that, that's sort of known, and they have ambassadors to, to, again, almost every country in the world. Basically, all of those embassies, and then part of the State Department back in D.C., are staffed by foreign service officers, right? So, like, if the ambassador is the boss at each embassy, like, the staff are foreign service officers combined with local staff who are hired. Um, so that that's that is the general organization that my wife is in. It works for the the officers that they spend two to three years at a clip on, on various assignments, and various tours, and various countries. Uh, so you're moving around a lot. Uh, there are you know there's a diverse set of jobs that you're doing at these various embassies. But the basic structure is there's a, a core of American government employees whose job is to work advancing American interests all around the globe, and that's what the foreign service is. So, um, I guess to start, I was going to start with, uh, you know, like, what does your wife do there? We can get into that next. But I'm curious, is it a, is it an inherently political position? Like, do people no, that are... No, it's not. That's a, that's a good question. I think one of the, one of the difficult things, actually, when she began the foreign service, and we were not married at the time, but we were together, was explaining to people that there's really a sharp difference between government and politics. So um, my wife joined when, when uh, President Bush was president, uh, started her career under Bush, served the entirety of the Obama administration, and now serves under the Trump administration. And that is the same thing for all of her colleagues. Now, as you go sort of up the professional chain, at the top, there are political appointees. But the, and this is not just the Foreign Service. The way the government works is that political appointees come in. They are sort of responsible for setting policy. And the, the job of government workers, and again, it's not just the Foreign Service or State Department. It's Treasury. It's, you know... All of, the, all of the government agencies, the job of the government employees is to implement the policy that is uh, brought in by the team that is appointed by the president who was elected. So government empo- employees frequently like serve decades uh, in their jobs uh, and working for you know bosses from both political parties. Right. That makes sense. Um, 
So what exactly does your wife do there? I mean, I, I know you've been to, yeah, to several it, different countries, it, but... Right, it, it changes. So the, the way the system works is that what your job is changes every few years because you're moving and you're doing, they're called tours, and they're two or three years long, and each tour is a job. It's not only a location, it's also a job description. So, you know, we lived in Juarez, Mexico for a couple of years, and her job was working uh, in the consular sections. Part of that was working on, vi on you know, on visa applications uh, for people coming to the U.S. Part of it was working in something called American Citizen Services, which is, you know, everything from uh, I was taking a day trip and I lost my passport uh, to, um, you know, having a frantic mother call up and say, my son was traveling in, in the country that you're in and I have not heard from him in a week and a half and this is abnormal. All of which are things that have happened um, and, and happen daily around the world and that's that's part of it. So that's, that's one job that she has done. You know, there are also sort of more uh, political or economic focused jobs where you are delivering messages to foreign governments. You are... Um, helping the um, U.S. government, you're part of the mechanism that helps the U.S. government understand what's going on in foreign countries. So, you know, this, you know, we lived in, in, in Latvia for a while, and so part of your job would be, well, the Latvian government, you know, just had a vote on this issue, and here's how the vote broke down, here's what it means for U.S. interests, here's what we think may, may, it may mean for the future of the country, for the future, future of our relationships, that kind of thing. And then, now, uh, she's also worked back in, in Washington, D.C. Some of those jobs, and, and there are tons of different jobs in D.C. Some of it is, is, you know, every country has a desk officer, which is sort of like the American government point person in D.C. for understanding what's going on in that country. So she's talking to the U.S. people working at the embassy there on a regular basis. If people up the food chain need to know information, she's the person that they come to. That kind of a job. But, like, the fundamental thing is, is if she describes it as having a career, but getting to apply for a new job every few years. Uh, and that's part of what she really likes about it. That's part of what we really enjoy about it as sort of a family is that there is, it's a very dynamic career. You get to do a lot of different things. You get to be a subject matter expert in a lot of really random and specific topics. Um, but the point is that you're always sort of working to help the diplomacy of the U.S., right? That's what you do. I'm curious, I mean, you've, obviously you guys have moved around to so many different places and, you know, you're, you're not in any one place for more than, it sounds like, three or five years. So I'm wondering what, like, for you guys personally, as a family, what is, like, that home-making process like, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge. I think you can see that my dog features very heavily on my Twitter account. And, look, part of it is, right, that you, you figure out what the staples of home are that are important to you. Um, and so, I like, I, I'm not joking when I say moving to a new country where I don't really speak the language, um, having to walk a dog every morning and go out and explore uh, is important to me, right? Like, that's part of the ritual of making someplace home and making me go out and get comfortable. And, like, stupid stuff, like finding a coffee shop I go to every morning, or finding my favorite lunch place. Like, living in a foreign country is very different from visiting a foreign country, 
and, and, and you know, everybody has different sort of adjustment and coping mechanisms and sort of the, the things that they do to make the life work for them. But I have found personally that a lot of sort of the rituals of routine, um, and look, I, I should add that uh, I, we have a, a, a nine-month-old daughter. We have not been overseas yet with a child, and I'm sure that changes things in a lot of different and interesting ways. Um, so like our, our previous overseas tours, it's been the two of us and the dog. Um, but yeah, I found that it is you know, for for us, certainly for me, it's a, it's a conscious prop. It's a conscious sort of attempt to figure out, okay, what are the things that I need to do to make this feel like home? It's interesting that you brought up the difference between living in a foreign country and visiting a foreign country because I was going to ask, like, were you a big traveler before you know you had a wife in the foreign I, service? But it's, was, I wasn't, but my wife was. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, the thing that really made her. Uh, gravitate to this career was doing a, 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 an internship in the foreign service while, when she was an undergrad, or just after undergrad. Um, and she's, she's done a, she had done a tremendous amount of travel. Uh, I had done, I don't know, an average amount of travel, right? Uh, a, a lot of it actually within the U.S., but look, I traveled. Um, I never lived abroad. I didn't live abroad as an undergrad. Uh, the first time that I lived outside of the U.S. is when we moved to Juarez. Go ahead. That was... I was going to say that that was, um, you know, in some ways it was really hard because Juarez was a, a very dangerous place to live when we were there. In some ways, the fact that my first overseas living experience was literally 11 and a half minutes from the United States made it easier, right? So, like, I mean, all of these things have, have you know, pluses and minuses, um, things to get used to, things that are easier than you expect, things that are harder than you expect. Um, but, like... Yeah, I was. I mean, it was a very new experience for me when we started doing it. What's been your uh, favorite place that you, you guys have lived in all your tours? Yeah, um, so we've only done two overseas tours, uh, and that's, that's Juarez and, and Riga. And Riga was just it was easier. It was nicer. Um, it was further away, it was, and at the same time, it felt more foreign. I, I very much enjoyed living living in Latvia. Um, in the city, pretty much everybody under the age of, of 35-ish spoke English. Um, so the fact that my Latvian was, um, I, I describe it as restaurant Latvian, right? Like I, I could read a menu, I could read a street sign. In certain situations, I could have about three sentences of conversation as long as you didn't surprise me with what you were saying. But that was sort of the extent of um, But I found it was still very... You know, easy for me to function in, in downtown Riga without much of a problem. And, you know, it's it's, it's uh, very far north, it's cold, it's got long winters, it's dark, but, I mean, in many ways it adds to its charm. So, I, you know, that was that was a very, it's the kind of place that you wouldn't think of, like, ever going to live if you didn't have a reason to go there, but I very much enjoyed the couple of years to spend there. <laughs> I have a couple of questions on, on this, you know, line of questioning, which is just a horrible sentence construction there. Um, so, first of all, what, what did you like better about Riga than Juarez, and what did you like better about Juarez than Riga? And then, when you were in Latvia, did you or did you not befriend a young Kristaps Porzingis? I did not befriend a young Kristaps Porzingis, although I will say that Latvia is fairly small, and everybody's about two degrees of separation from everybody else. Um, so, I did know somebody who uh, had dated the tennis player Gulbis when, when, when Gulbis was younger. That's basically um, the same thing. You know, that's like, that's like <laughs> you know, 
that I did, by the way, go to, well, I was just a ticket holder for Vef Riga, the, the basketball team there, and for uh, Dinamo Riga, the hockey team there, which was a lot of fun. Um, and, and if we're talking about being uh, athletes, uh, new Sanders also lunch a little bit, the, the sort of the hockey player. Oh, yeah. Uh, Old school hockey player. Yeah, but he was finishing his career playing for his home team in, in Riga uh, the last year we were there, um, which was cool. Uh, we had tickets right behind the glass. Uh, I will tell you uh, a little story. That one thing I really remember, actually, about going to the, the, the hockey games over two seasons was that Oslunch came for the second season, and he worked the refs like you're used to seeing an athlete in America work the refs, right? Like, bef- like before the puck drop, he'd go up, he'd put his arm around him, he'd talk to them, like, you know, how are your wife, how are your kids? This was a thing that nobody else was doing in the league, and I just remember sitting behind the, like, the glass, behind the, the Riga's bench, uh, and being like, huh, and weird that, like, the cultural differences of, in, in sort of athletes and athletics between America and abroad. Um, so, but that, all of that kind of stuff is what I really liked about living in Riga, you know, more than Juarez. You couldn't, like, Juarez at the time still had a, a professional soccer team, but you couldn't really go out, um... Like, you were living in Juarez, what you were doing to go out and socialize, to go out to dinner, to go see a movie, was mostly driving over the border into El Paso. Mm. And so, on the one hand, I guess the thing that you'd say is, that was easier in a lot of ways than than living in Riga. You know, shopping was easier, uh, going to see American movies was easier. There were plenty of American movies in, in Latvia, and they were all actually in English, um, with uh, Latvian and Russian subtitles. But one thing I'll say to you is you don't realize how much non-English is in American movies until you watch them with only subtitles that you can't read. <laughs> like, we went, we went I, I distinctly remember we went and saw Captain Phillips, and there is not a word of English spoken in like the first 20 minutes of the movie because it's set with the Somali pirates. I didn't have a freaking clue what was going on. <laughs> you know, my wife was sitting next to me, like frantically helping me and trying to like like translate the subtitles for me. Um, so she was the, the annoying movie. person in the movie theater talking the whole right, time. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the same thing happened uh, when I saw The Hobbit and when I saw Star Trek because there were scenes with Elvish and Klingon, and it's the same the same thing. Like the, the subtitles, you, just, you don't have the, the American subtitles, so they had no idea what was happening. Um, these are like the little things you learn when you live abroad. Um, so yeah, so I think like in some ways, you know, culturally, it was cool to get to experience Riga because you really are experiencing another culture. Um, whereas in, in Juarez, you're not because it's dangerous, and you to the, even to the extent that you want to engage with Mexican culture, it's hard. And it's, it's somewhat different now than when we were there. But when we were there, it was a really dangerous time. And if you were going to go out, you were really going out into El Paso, which is you know. It's an American city. Um, so you, initially, you, you talked about sports and like you had, you had season tickets and all that. Were sports kind of a way of adapting for you? Uh, like, yeah, like, oh, for, familiar. For sure. Um, and it's not only like hanging on to something familiar, but it was very actively a way in which I felt like I could um, engage with local culture, right? Like go out and you know have something in common with people from where I was. So, you know, uh, it was something that I could talk with my wife's Latvian co-workers about, right? Like, all the time. And there, there would be cool stories. Um, 
there was a little uh, four-team baseball league that was getting off the ground in, in, in Riga with some of the people at the embassy, you know, Americans at the embassy participating in, in launching it with, 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 with people who lived in Riga, which was tons of fun. So you did definitely have all of these things that, I, you know, to me, um, were a way to both sort of have something that I was personally comfortable with and have something that was sort of a bridge to talk to people with very different life experiences from living and growing up somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> just, you know, as far as the the relationship with someone who was in the foreign, I mean, was your wife already in the foreign service when you met her? No, no I've known her for, I've known her since we were in college, although she was, <laughs> we didn't start dating when we were in college. Um, she was in the process of applying when we started dating. Okay, so what uh, was that conversation like? That's that's where my question was yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. So um, the answer is is, is that it, it, it didn't come up until she got in, and then there is a whole bunch of lead time before you go somewhere. Um, the the process of getting into the foreign service itself is a, is, is a lengthy one. There's it's it's you know. Uh, there's a test you pass, there's the security clearances, there's all these things, then there's there's sort of like baseline training when you come in. Uh, and then once you find out where you're going, and this is true throughout the, the, the your, your career in the foreign service, you have tons of, of training before you go. Uh, I mean, the majority of it, time-wise, is taken up by learning the language, right? They teach you the language. Um, so, you know, she, when we found out, you know, when she found out that Juarez was going to be her first tour, the first thing they do is go, all right, you have, you have like seven, nine months or whatever to learn Spanish to the degree you will need to know. Um, plus there's then sort of like operational training, how, you know, learning to, to do the job that you, you're going to be asked to do. Um, so I had, you know, I had sort of decided this was, this was around 2008 and I was working um, on Wall Street. Uh, so I was, it was sort of the midst of the financial crisis. Um, Good place so, to be working at that time. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting in its own right, for sure. Uh, more in retrospect than during. Um, but, I, you know, so we had conversations before she found out where she was going about me uh, going with her. Um, and then, so that let me be a part of the process of sort of, you never have control over where you're going, and at different points in your career, you have varying degrees of more or less control. Early on, you have very little. You put a list together, and then they tell you. Um, so I got to participate in putting the list together, um, but then basically you get told you're going to Juarez, and then you have eight, nine, ten months, almost a year to, yeah, it, was about, it was about ten months, to sort of get yourself comfortable with it and figure out how you're going to handle it. What's that waiting process like, that year, that, or that ten to ten month to year long waiting process, uh, is that at all like unnerving or all for you guys because you're in this weird like kind of holding pattern? Well, I mean, she's in training, right? Like, like yeah. that time of period, she's, she's learning Spanish. I, I mean, at the time, I was still working in my job. I, you know, I didn't leave my job until about a month, maybe two months before we left. Um, it's a little, now, as you get into the foreign service, like, for spouses, it gets a little different, right? Like, I'm incredibly lucky that I've sort of been able to put together a career that is compatible with her life. Um, it's something I wanted to do. Lots of spouses both don't want to do that, don't have the opportunity to do that. So their employment is 
is difficult. Um, you know, there are sometimes jobs you can do as a spouse at various embassies. There are some ways of working on local local economies when you're overseas. Um, but it's tricky. And it's additionally tricky then when you do have these stretches of time in the U.S. where the person you're, you're married to or you're partnered with uh, is doing training and you don't really have a career necessarily that you're coming back to. Um, you know, in a lot of cases you're being a full-time parent um, and if you've chosen to do that or want to be doing that. But for a lot of other people, it can be sort of like this, this difficult time of, you know, your spouse, your spouse is training and you're just sort of waiting for training to be done. Yeah, it's hard. It can be hard. What's the male-female breakdown among trailing spouses like that, that you know yes. and in general? It's interesting. So for a long time, the, the bar and service was quite predominantly male. So the trailing spouses were quite predominantly female. It was also quite predominantly uh, straight. I, I think the sort of pejorative, the pejorative sentence that some people say is um, Yale, male, and stale. Um, <laughs> sort of most traditional uh, That's changed a lot, uh, especially over the past 20 years. But it is, there is still an imbalance, and there's probably even more of a trailing spouse imbalance. It's, it's a, it is an interesting dynamic. Um, I've never been the only uh, male, male trailing spouse, as I think through it. There have always been uh, one or two others, usually not more than that. Um, I have at times been the only sort of independently employed male trailing spouse. Um, which is interesting. And then sort of so socially, it does become, it, it can be weird, right? Most of the, the sort of the, the spouse social uh, structures are geared, um, they're predominantly female spaces, and that's that's fine, but it, it can be sort of a, a challenge of making your own way in, in that in that world. So when you were in, um, you know, in, in Riga or in Juarez, what was that socialization aspect like I mean is it are you all together all the time yeah. so so yeah so your social circle is predominantly um, the the embassy people um, not, not completely but predominantly right so you know the couple friends that you hang out with are, are people at least one of whom usually works at the embassy and you have to work hard to meet other people outside of that circle. You have to make a conscious. You can do it. You certainly can do it. Um, no, uh, but you have to work consciously at it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it can be tricky. It's a little. It can be a little college-y, right? Like like those sort of like clicky social circles. Um, it's also very transitory, right? You're only in a place for two or three years. Your tour doesn't necessarily overlap with um, other people's tours. So you know you can have people who you're close with for the first year who are then gone, or people who are just getting there, you know, from a previous tour that you like, but you're leaving. Um, so, so that's part of it. Um, and then it can be tricky being the spouse half of that, because unsurprisingly, when your social circle is your professional circle, everybody talks about work. That's, you know, that's, that's not weird, it's just the way it is. And so... Uh, and, you know, as a as a spouse, look, I, I I I have good friends who are foreign service officers that I've met because they work with my wife. Like it, it, that, that absolutely, and again, sort of uh, sports in some ways transcends that. Like you know, 
I was the person organizing, you know, evening trips and readings to watch Champions League at, 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 our, at our local bar that we liked, right? Like, that's what we did. And, and lots of people that were doing that were um, my wife's coworkers. So that's cool. And it works, and it, it works well. But yeah, it, it is just sort of an added hurdle and an added you know, social tension to, to sort of that you, you have to figure out how to navigate. Was it? Tough. I'm guessing that it wasn't as tough in Warren as I said. Maybe in Riga was it tough communicating uh, with like friends and family back home and like working out that schedule or whatever. Yes and no. I mean, it's it's an increasingly small world, um, yeah. and that's that's one of the things about doing it in this day and age, which is very different from what the farm service has been historically. Um, you know, it, it's not it's seven hours from Riga to, to the East Coast. Ten to the west coast is maybe a bit much, but it's 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 not that hard to figure out time to face time, honestly. Um, and Riga, Riga, like you know, Riga's not all that difficult to get to. Like my family came out to visit, my wife's family came out to visit, we had some friends come out to visit. There are certainly places in the world that you can go that it is very very hard to just physically get to, or very hard to have stable internet to the point that it allows you to FaceTime. Um, we haven't been to any of those places yet, which isn't to say that we might one day, but we, we haven't yet. Do you know, like, do you know, I, know, I think you're in D.C. right now. Yeah, do you yeah. know where she's going next? Uh, we, we're in the process of figuring it out. And, you know, government processes are always tricky in the way that you can have an idea of where you're going, but until it's confirmed, it's not confirmed. Right. Um, we expect to be in DC for a little while longer, um, and I guess in these terms, that's, that's a, a, you know at least a year, if not more. Um, it's certainly likely that we'll be doing another tour in DC just as these things work out. But it's a kind of thing where you just you don't know until you know. Well, that's good. You, you won't have to travel with your daughter for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that, that cuts both ways. But yeah, I mean, you know, some, sometimes it's easier. it's possible that the first time we go overseas, we'll, we'll, we'll also be looking at figuring out what the schooling situation is like for. Her. Mm. Do you uh, do you ever do you or did you ever miss uh, stuff from Juarez or Riga? Yeah, I mean, again, that so, some of it is stuff you miss. Some of it is stuff you overload. I believe when we came back from Mexico, we. Both of us took like nine months off from Mexican food. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like when we were in Riga, my wife learned to make bagels because we miss bagels. Um, it is oftentimes small things that you don't necessarily even realize until you're sort of in it, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, 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 it's, it's kind of like that. It, it's, it, oftentimes it's like just. Gee, for whatever reason, the, the, the vegetables that we're able to buy at the store in the U.S. last longer than the ones we're buying here in Riga. That's annoying. You know, it, 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 it's, it is when, when things get frustrating, it is more often the piling of little things on top of each other than it is necessarily um, one or two big things. And I should also add that part of that is, is mitigated by the, by the U.S. government, who does a pretty good job of moving you around, you have a basically your address is a U.S. postal box, so it's fairly easy to get things shipped to you that you wouldn't necessarily order, normally be able to order from overseas. Amazon has really changed the world in a lot of ways, um, but yeah, I mean they're they're absolutely sort of like little at the minimum little things that that can pile up. 
That makes sense. Um, and I, didn't, I honestly didn't even think about that question, so I'm glad Jordan asked it. Um, so I, I want to get into like the, the psychological aspect of things a little bit here. Um, you know, if, if someone were to ask you, you know, you go to a fancy dinner party or whatever, whether you're in a foreign country or you're here, I mean, if they ask you what you do, would you tell them that you are a trailing FSO spouse, a soccer writer, both? I, I, mean, I, I tell them I'm a soccer writer. Okay. Because I know there are some women that have written about like the, the trailing spouse terminology and the connotations of it. Like, do you have similar feelings about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't a soccer writer when we started this. I, I mean, I, I started doing this professionally full-time uh, when I was in Riga. Um, to me, it's important, right? To me, it's important that I can say, okay, here's this thing that I do. Um, and I will say, sort of anecdotally, uh, we have this joke that, generally speaking, her colleagues are oftentimes interested, very interested in my job as a sports writer, and as we're talking about now, my colleagues are oftentimes very interested in, in her job as a foreign service officer, um, which I think probably serves both of us well. Um, but it is, it is an identity issue, and it's, it's been a, a long-standing identity issue within the foreign service. So, you know, for a long time, being the wife of a foreign service officer was its own thing and kind of had to be. There were, I mean, there were more employment opportunities now as the world shrunk than there used to be. It used to be that... Again, this was predominantly being the wife of a male foreign service officer meant that you were doing things like hosting dinner parties, you know, preparing the home for guests. Like, until the 1970s, a foreign service officer's spouse could be part of their uh, professional review. Um, and when the interesting thing is when that was changed, when that could, when, you know, thankfully, like, you couldn't do that anymore, right? You couldn't be like, Johnson, you're not getting a promotion because your wife's too ugly. Um, when they changed that, there were a number of wives of foreign service officers who objected to the change because for them, a big part of their identity was, this is how I am contributing to the effort of, of the United States, right? This is what makes me feel patriotic. This is how I help in my own way. And so I, I do think that for... For some spouses, there is still that feeling that they, they opt to identify that way and do that, and that has both its its benefits and its weaknesses, right? Like, there's, there's absolutely strength in getting identity from that, but it can be hard at a party if you identify yourself as the trailing spouse. Um, you can feel, I, I've had this happen to me, I've had this happen to me where, because it's, it's, it's oftentimes what people find is that sort of just naturally somebody will assume I am the officer if we meet a couple. And when you say to somebody, oh no, actually my wife is the officer, I blah, 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 you can see the, the, the sort of the downshift in the person you're talking to and the, oh, I need to actually talk to the person who's more important. And some <laughs> of that is obnoxious. Some of that is obnoxious, right? Some of that is like, come on, don't be a, don't be a dick. <laughs> but some of that is also like, if you're at an event, Right? If you're at an official event of whatever capacity, part of the reason people are there is so that they can talk to each other. Um, and so you do have to sort of like emotionally figure out how to balance that. Right. I mean, so just in a general sense, I mean, what is it like to have, 
your life defined, like at least in some way, to, to even more of an extent than probably a typical married person, like by another person and what they do for a living. You know, I, I know you said like you don't say you're an FSO spouse, but, you know, I joked the other day, like t- your Twitter bio is the new business card and you've got it in there. So it's like, it's part of your life and it, it does seem like it, from talking oh, to yeah, you, like it, it at least well, defines your life in some way. Like, have you grappled with that? How have you grappled with that? What is it like? Sure, I mean, absolutely it is. And you need, look, I mean, at some point here, right, you're getting into people's, you know, I can speak for my marriage and my relationship and our life and the way we've built our life. I can't speak for every couple who is in the farm service. But for us, it is a constant process of figuring out how to treat what is her career as our endeavor and our life, right? So it's it's the ways in which we prioritize which jobs she's trying to get. It's not it, 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 it's not a, it, it, it's a cooperative thing. It's like okay, these are the things that are important to me. These are the things that are important to you. When we put them together, like how do we come up with uh, you know sort of a list of jobs to pursue for for her that makes sense, right? Like there's no way we would have been uh, on our second and maybe our third straight U.S. tour if I didn't have a, like, it, like you know, we, we made the conscious decision we were going to stay in the United States for a full World Cup cycle for, for my career. Um, and so you, you do have, like, in a lot of ways what it, it, it forces you to do or forces us to do, like, and I don't want to talk to other people, is explicitly address, talk about, and communicate uh, sort of the things that exist in any marriage or any interpersonal relationship, you know, how are we balancing the things that are important to us? Uh, you know, how are we are, are we building our life together? How are we projecting this out over years? And then, of course, as much as you make an effort to do that, um, you know, every three months something unexpected happens, and it you know it, it throws your plans for for you know a, a complete tumble, right? Like when we started the plan to uh, stay in the U.S. for a full World Cup cycle, I was on staff at Grantland. And like the hope was like I could stay on staff at Grantland for a World Cup cycle, and then I would be established. And you know the world changes, right? Like the world changes in all sorts of ways, and you absolutely then have to go and deal and adjust to that. When and I'm uh, well, I guess it's, it's a continuous conversation. Or when did that conversation first start? Um, I mean, I think we've been clear-eyed about it since she joined the farm service. I, I mean, I think we've been sort of clear-eyed about um, the things that it would take to do this well, to do this healthfully, to, to do it effectively. Um, you know, my my sort of contribution and like hers as well, what you prioritize change as the years go on, right? Like when we started, it was before I was, I was a, a, a soccer writer. It was actually before I was a freelance writer, sort of a any variety. And at the time, my, what I said was, I'll figure it out, right? Like, as we go, I'll figure it out. Um, but, you know, and thankfully, luckily, I did. But then I figured out something that I really felt passionately about wanting to do and wanting to keep doing. And, and you know, she's been great about that. And that adjusts your worldview. You know, your worldview adjusts based on what she thinks her career path looks like, you know, sort of within the bureaucracy, right? Like, Different administrations prioritize different things. You know, budgets change. All of those things happen, so you reevaluate that way as well. But yeah, it's, I mean, it started 
It didn't even start when she got into the fire service. This started when she applied to the fire service. Um, sort of like, what does this life look like, and then how do you do it? Right. I mean, so you mentioned a little bit earlier that you know the government has some sort of you know ways to help people adjust to life overseas. I mean, do they have like particular services to help with maybe like the not necessarily the living aspect, but like the mental aspect? of, you know, living your life in a, in a far different way than necessarily um, you may have been accustomed to before? And do they have that not just for the officers, but for the spouses as well? So, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And it depends. They're, they're, they're certainly better at some things than other things. So, like, you know, you don't have to find your own housing, right? Like, the, for the most part, the, I mean, this is, these are all general statements. They're not specifically true for everyone. But generally, like, you don't have to find your own housing. They have a housing pool. You put down, you know, sort of your priorities in, in, in what you're looking for, and they, you know, your family size, and they say, okay, this is the place where you're living. Fine. Um, they move you, which is, oh, my God, there's so much easier. I was so spoiled by that, right? Like, Do you even have to pack, pack, or do they pack for you, too? No, they come in, they pack you up. Um... You know, you have a weight limit of study of stuff that gets shipped by air and you get that barely pressing And then you have a, a much larger weight limit of stuff that gets shipped by sea and that, you know, you can do without your stuff in three months. But again, they're doing it for you, right? Like that's and that, and that makes your life tremendously easier. Um, professionally they teach the officer in most cases, the language to a certain degree or other, because they have to for their job. Uh, if there is space in the class, they allow spouses to take the language classes as well. I took Latvian classes before we went to Rica. Um, my wife is amazing at language, I am not, so like it did not stick with me the way it stuck with her, but it, again, it, it, it helps, and that's something the government does uh, for you. Every post has what's called a community liaison officer. Um, the times that job is actually filled by a spouse. Not always, but often. Um, and again, that person's job is to do things like facilitate uh, information about schools and like adjustment and all of these things. So there are processes in place. When you get to the, the sort of like the, I, I guess the, the sort of like squishier side of things, like how can you live a happy life overseas? When, you know, how can you live a happy life when you're moving around a lot? That stuff, and maybe it should be, is, is, is not, I, I, you know, the Foreign Service provides some resources, uh, and, you know, the family liaison office exists and does stuff, but it is much more on sort of the individual families and the individual officers to, to figure out how to manage their lives. That seems like an area that could be improved, <laughs> just from afar. Like, I mean, what, what I'll say is, right, that's that. I mean, if, if we're going to talk about the government, that's certainly not unique to the Foreign Service, and it probably isn't like, you know, you look at, say, the way veterans are treated uh, after they serve of, of the armed forces. Um, there are a lot of pressing ways in which we can, as a society, do better about mental health. Um, and so, part does Foreign Service fall under that rubric? Absolutely. Uh, is it unique to the Foreign Service? Absolutely not. Right. I mean, are there, um, so, you know, obviously I would imagine they have it in, in foreign countries. Do they have, like, readjustment services when you come back here, or do they just assume, like, everything's going to be no. fine because you're coming back? Yeah, they, they, I mean, you, they, again, I, I haven't 
water is pretty dangerous. And so, yeah, it's, 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 no, no, they, they sort of feel like, you know, you're coming home, you've only been over there. Uh, if it's dangerous, a max two years. If it's not dangerous, probably three, maybe four at the outside. Um, so, you know, you just come home. Um, yeah. I mean, is, when you are stationed here, I mean, are you always in D.C.? Are there other places throughout the country that they have? The vast majority of jobs are in D.C. There are... Um, other places at, at sort of random points around the country. Some of them are like um, in-house at, at, at colleges and universities to sort of talk about what the Foreign Service is. Uh, there are this, I, there's a, like a records facility in like I think Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where there are some jobs. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the lion's share. Of, oh, there are jobs at the United Nations in New York for sure. Um, so the, the lion's share of, of jobs are in DC, but there are others sprinkled around. Right. So. The, uh, the last question I've got here, actually, is, um, so I would imagine, you know, you've, you've talked about it a lot, you know, you, your wife has done this for a while now, I mean, I would imagine it's something that, as of now, she sees as the career path for quite some time, I mean, when you plan out the rest of your life, or when you look ahead to the rest of your life, I mean, do you see this as the, as the path you will both be on, and does, does that excite you, scare you, what are your feelings about you know, having this, you know, you've already had a part of your life for, for a while, you know, at least like eight, nine, ten years, whatever it's been so far. Um, but you're looking at double, triple, quadruple that into the future if she stays in. What are your feelings on that moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, you're right that, that as of now, that this is what we view um, our life paths as. Um, I, I think... Part of the benefit of the way the Foreign Service works is that you're always reevaluating your life path. You have to, right? Because your job and where you're living is potentially changing quite frequently. Mm. Um, so I think we are somewhat more clear-eyed in what it means to say this is our life path, right? Than saying this is what we envision for our future for everybody in the world comes with a big, heavy helping of but it might not end up that way. And being in the foreign service, um, you know, forces you to have those conversations a lot. And so, like, I, I can say personally that as you look at the changing, you know, me, you know, internet media environment, it has been helpful for me to sort of come to terms with what that can possibly mean, because I'm used to having these sort of like big life conversations. We have them, you know, that they're ongoing conversations with us. So talking about, well, gee, what if the, you know, what if there is no soccer nerd writing job for me in the future? What does that look like? You know, how does that change where we're going? How does that change what I would want to be doing where we're going? Does it change my priorities? It does change my priorities. All of a sudden, if I don't need to be able to stream soccer games, there's a lot of countries that have so-so internet that come back on the list, right? Like, and so... I know I put out like, that, that that's kind of silly, but it's also true, and it forces you to sort of examine which parts of your life are important, which parts of your life are limiting, and say, look, we all. So you do say, look, what does it mean if you you know you reach a point in in two years, in five years, in twelve years where you don't want to be in the fire service, or where it turns out that the, this life is more difficult for our kids than we anticipated, right? Like, mm -hmm. you don't know what, you know, I wouldn't nine months old. who knows what that kid is going to be like when they grow up? Who knows what they are going to find easy and what they are going to find hard? Um, now, I would say that that's not just a foreign surface conversation. That's a life conversation, but it's one of those kinds of foreign conversations that the foreign service, if you're 
in my opinion, doing it sort of well and healthfully forces you to have with each other. And, and so the answer is, yeah, we look at this as our career paths, as our life paths. But given the sort of unique uh, aspects of the foreign service, I think we are probably more comfortable with the what-if conversations that surround life paths than I think a lot of people might be. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like you guys kind of have a leg up on that one because you've been forced to have these conversations like so many times and it's just an ongoing one rather than something you've never brought up before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And look, I, I should say, you know, you asked me before, had I traveled a lot? And the answer was no. But have I done a lot? You know, like, I'm on my third, yeah, I'm 33 and I'm on my third career. Um, and like, I, I've been a sports writer, you know, I've, I've been a full-time soccer writer for about five years. Um, and it's the longest I've ever done anything in my life. And I love it. I love doing it. But, um, you know, if you were to categorize the way my life path has looked, uh, in sort of in, in concert with my wife's, um, I, I, I think I've, I've sort of demonstrated a facility that I like moving around and doing different things and taking on new challenges, uh, stressful as it may be, as you're going about doing it. Um, so, you know, there are always challenges, but I think we've approached foreign service life with sort of uh, this clear-eyed, heavy-on communication, um, and I think that that's... Those those are the kinds of skills that stand people well as they're as they're sort of addressing the big questions in their life. I wonder if you thought about this before. I mean, you mentioned that you're you know you're comfortable moving around, bouncing around, different careers. Have you thought about whether or not that would be the case if your wife wasn't in the foreign service? Like, do you think that that has affected? Yeah, I, I mean, I've thought about it, but uh, I was on career two before she joined. So. Okay. Um, yes. My, my life path was uh, I graduated college, I was a professional poker player, then I worked on Wall Street, then my wife joined the fire service, and I translated into writing. And that, that went from financial writing to sports writing. So, um, like, I can draw through lines. Like, my entire life has been about, like, um, sort of translating technical and mathy data for people that weren't necessarily comfortable with it in, in various walks of life. But I was definitely. Um, I was, I, I mean, I was always sort of on an untraditional career path and happy with it, uh, and that, that that predated the foreign service as well. Mike, thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining us. This is a great chat. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. It's, it's kind of, it's not usual. You get a chance to talk about, you know, this this kind of stuff. Um, most people, you say the foreign service, and, and the, the, there's a, a somewhat quizzical look, and, and then the eyes sort of glaze over. <laughs> We're trying to help people with that quizzical look and the glazed eyes. <laughs> if that happens at the end of this, it will have been a successful podcast. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much, man. So much appreciated. Thanks a lot, guys.